At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. I'm Alex Helmick, Managing Editor of WABE News. And on this week in review, learning basic computer skills or preparing for a career in technology often requires a knowledge of the English language. English is the, you know, lingua franca um, for information exchange in science, technology, and, and business. We look at two programs in Atlanta working to make tech education more accessible to people as they continue to learn English. That's coming up on WAB's TechCast in about 10 minutes. But first, our thoughts are with those hit by Hurricane Ian and having to rebuild their lives, most of them in Florida. The storm appears to have spared Georgia's coast from the most extreme damage. But as state officials and Georgia Power prepared this week, Christopher Alston paid a visit to the Utility Giants Master Control Center in Atlanta to see how they were preparing. Jacob Hawkins is a spokesman for Georgia Power. You know, this the center has been activated two or three days now, but the planning around the Hurricane Ian response has been happening since last weekend, really. Hawkins says much of the power grid is computerized, but the first step after the storm is to send out crews to get eyes on the ground. They report back and say, this is what we see here. We see a tree, this, you know, here's a picture, we're going to need a uh, transformer, two poles, this much wire. That information gathering as the first stage is really important to make sure that we're doing it really efficiently and we're addressing where we can get the power turned on the quickest and to the most number of people. So that damage assessment's a critical group. The Storm Center is also home to teams that monitor large transmission outages the company's fleet of trucks, and communicating with the public. Employees in the Storm Center manage the logistics for getting teams where they're needed and figuring out how to house them. A lot of our crews, we do use hotels. We also use sleeping trailers. So you will see um, almost little cities that get set up at what we call staging areas. Some of those crews come from across Georgia and other states, as Georgia Power is part of a mutual assistance network with other power companies. When we need assistance, we can call them. And when they need assistance, they call us. So if you look at the wall over here, you see some of our line crews who um, were up in New York after, I think that was Hurricane Sandy. Hawkins says there's always a great willingness among Georgia Power employees to step up and volunteer when a storm hits. When you see the people who will take time away from their families and go work a week or two away from their families in the field in very hard and challenging conditions, it makes you appreciate what it takes to bring power to you every day. He also says, while there is more attention on that work around the time of a storm, the work to prepare for these events is always underway. What we do during storms is really the same thing we do every day. So we have a group at Georgia Power that is dedicated to forestry and right-of-way maintenance. So when you see power crews out trimming trees and actually you know, clearing those power lines, that is preventative. Getting out and trimming those trees year-round is part of our storm preventive maintenance. Hawkins says the main message to Georgia Power customers is that they should be prepared build a preparedness kit, make sure you have flashlights and batteries and phone chargers. I love little power banks that help me you know, charge my phone when, when we do lose power. 
Um, and then, you know, if you're out after the storm, uh, just, just keep safety in mind. Stay away from down power lines. Stay away from standing water. Don't touch chain link fences where there may be a down power line nearby. And then if you see our crews working, just move over, give them some room, uh, make sure that they have room to safely work. Georgians can check Georgia Power's website for the latest outage maps and estimated restoration times. Christopher Alston, WABE News. Well, let's stay on the utilities topic. This week, the state held hearings on Georgia Power's plan to increase power bills by some 12% over three years. Emily Jones broke it down. Georgia's largest electric company says it wants to charge more money to pay for improvements to the grid and the transition away from coal. It also wants to increase profits for shareholders. That issue, known as return on equity, was a major focus of the second day of testimony. And would you agree that the commissioners have the very important responsibility of weighing the interests of hardworking Georgians who have to pay higher power, power bills versus whether to give the company even more profit? That's Liz Coyle of consumer advocacy group Georgia Watch, questioning Georgia Power's expert witness, Stephen Fetter. I think the commission has to look at the record as a whole, including evidence put in by Georgia Watch, and come to the decision that they feel best serves the public policy of the state of Georgia. This week's hearings are for testimony from the utilities officials and experts. But two commissioners, Fitz Johnson and Chair Trisha Pridemore, demanded that advocates like Coyle and others provide specific return on equity figures they would recommend. Here's Pridemore. I tend to believe that if I ask an intervener a question and they fail to answer it, why should I keep in mind their witness's opinion or, or their cross? They won't answer my question. Why should I care about what the rest I have to say? Those interveners represent interest groups that will submit their own expert testimony and recommendations at hearings in November. Emily Jones, WABE News. So early voting for the midterms start in a couple of weeks. And in the latest episode of our podcast, Georgia Votes 2022, we look at what officials are doing to get ready. Here's WAB's Susanna Capilouto, Sam Greenglass, and Raul Bali, along with Axios's Emma Hurt. So we had a state elections board meeting this week, and it featured a person from Dominion Voting Systems. That's the company Georgia uses for its voting machines, and it's also the company mentioned by a lot of conspiracy theorists. Now, why was Dominion at this meeting, and what did they do? So we saw something a little different at this meeting of the state election board. Rather than talking about a lot of new business, what they did was they brought in experts, including the head of Dominion Voting Systems, to basically explain how voting machines work, how ballot scanners work, because a lot of the people who show up to these meetings, some of them are conspiracy theorists who have raised a lot of false claims about how these voting machines work. And so the idea behind bringing experts in is to try and bat back some of those conspiracy theories to explain how do the machines tabulate votes? How does the backup work to convince people that they are safe and secure? But at the same time, we heard from some activists who were kind of like, mm, this might be too little too late because a lot of people who believe these conspiracy theories around how elections were ran in 2020 and beyond, they're really dug in on those ideas at this point. And even bringing in the experts who can explain how these processes work, it might be too late to change their minds. And we might be stuck with, with some of these conspiracy theories for the foreseeable future. And I just think the big picture here is that we are seeing Georgia election officials 
and the State Election Board and the Secretary of State's office that spent a whole day basically with media answering also a lot of kind of basic questions about election security, trying to get ahead of this. 2020 was a disaster of disinformation for them, and they're trying to lay the groundwork this time ahead of time. And there's a lot more on the full podcast, including how the parties are courting suburban voters. Subscribe to it, Georgia Votes 2022, in your favorite podcast app. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Staying with politics, a Georgia teachers union has endorsed Democratic candidates in statewide races for the upcoming midterm elections, except for one state schools superintendent. Martha Dalton reported until recently it didn't seem like Democrats were backing that candidate either. Teachers groups are often associated with Democrats due to their support of issues like increasing school spending. So it wasn't surprising when the Georgia Association of Educators endorsed Stacey Abrams for governor in June. My pledge is to make certain that the base starting pay in the state of Georgia by 2026 will be $50,000 a year for the state of Georgia. The GAE also endorsed Democrats for lieutenant governor, attorney general, and labor commissioner, but not state school superintendent. Instead, the association has endorsed Republican incumbent Richard Woods over Democrat Alicia Thomas Searcy. Lisa Morgan is the organization's president. One of our major differences is Ms. Searcy does support and voted for the um, tax credits for um, public funds to go to private schools. And uh, we view that as a voucher scheme. When she was in the state legislature, Cersei also supported a constitutional amendment to expand charter schools and a now unpopular teacher evaluation system. GAE opposes all three. So do a lot of Democrats. And those positions may have helped alienate Cersei from other members of her party. She wrote on Facebook this week that she felt excluded by others on the Democratic ticket led by Abrams. There have been a number of instances where I have not been included. Like campaign events and literature, she says. But since her post, Cersei says some candidates have reached out to assure her they support her campaign. It appears to me that they've changed course. I'm happy to see that. I'm hopeful and I'm looking forward to winning in November. For its part, Stacey Abrams' campaign says she supports the entire Democratic ticket and that the candidates participate in joint fundraising. Martha Dalton, WABE News. Well, residents of Atlanta, for whom English is a second language, can often face barriers when it comes to learning technology. This can range from acquiring basic computer skills to preparing for a career in highly technical fields. In this week's episode of WABE TechCast, Emil Moffitt has a look at two programs in Atlanta that are trying to help. Language translations done by artificial intelligence that you may see while browsing the web 
are getting better all the time, but Michael Alvarez with the Latin American Association says they're still far from perfect. A lot of social media sites or when you see a post and you see that little eye with a circle around it and you can change the language, it really doesn't convey everything that, that they want. And this shortcoming points to a bigger issue, the accessibility of tech to those who are learning English. Alvarez is the adult education coordinator with the LAA, which enrolls more than 2,000 people a year in English language classes. He says the organization's website is offered in both Spanish and in English, but they don't rely on tech to do it. Just about everything has been translated um, tactfully by hand to make sure that we adequately convey our mission and our goals. Part of that mission and those goals is to offer computer education classes for those with little to no experience with tech, learning things like how to email, how to build a spreadsheet, how to surf the web. Alvarez says communicating across cultures is not always just about language, but about the accessibility of tech devices themselves. He points to a Pew Research Center study that found Latinos are 15% more likely to access the internet on mobile phones rather than desktop computers. There's only so much information that you can put in when you're registering for something, when you're putting an order in for something, that they're designed for a screen, an iPad or a a desktop. He says companies who don't have mobile-friendly or truly bilingual websites can lose business when it comes to the growing spending power of Latinos. With the majority of big tech companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Meta founded and based in the U.S., it's not surprising that English is often front and center in the tech world. English is the, you know, lingua franca um, for information exchange in science, technology, and, and business primarily. Catherine Samford is a senior lecturer at Georgia Tech. She also works at the school's Language Institute, which has been around for more than 60 years and has had students from more than 100 different countries. At the Language Institute, we work very diligently to connect with other academic units and departments and um, help them with any kind of sort of technical manuals or, you know, that sort of thing, and to customize courses that would um, help somebody who's in that technical space um, but is needing to learn all that in English. The Language Institute serves students both from Georgia Tech and from other schools, as well as career professionals in Atlanta. She says for those in tech careers, learning how to communicate with colleagues in English is one thing, but speaking to a broader audience can sometimes present challenges to those still learning the language. When you get to, you know, communicating with a less technical audience, um, such as networking, um, social situations, uh, even interviews. That's where it's difficult for someone whose primary exposure in English has been communicating around their subject matter. While technology can make it easier to connect across the world, language barriers can often put up roadblocks, something programs like these are trying to remove. For WABE TechCast, I'm Emil Moffitt. And finally today, Georgia resident and former president Jimmy Carter turned 98 years old today. That's Saturday, October 1st, for all of you who listen to this as a podcast. Over Carter's lifetime, Georgia's political parties and the coalitions of voters who support them have risen and fallen, shifted and realigned. Let's hear again from Sam Greenglass. When Jimmy Carter ran as a Democrat for state Senate in 1962, there was no question which party would win. The Republican Party has not run a gubernatorial candidate in Georgia at that point, at any point in the 20th century. 
the state had never voted for a Republican for president. Never. Not even during Reconstruction. So, yeah, it's a one party state. UGA professor Charles Bullock says when Carter ran for governor a few years later, the sharpest partisan divide was within the Democratic Party between opponents of desegregation and more progressive candidates. Carter is the candidate of conservatives, the candidate of uh, don't desegregate. Now, Carter immediately pivots in his inaugural address and he stuns his supporters by saying segregation, all that stuff's in the past now. And voters out. what the hell is he saying here? It's not until the turn of the century that Republicans gain a foothold. The GOP wins first in the suburbs, driven by new arrivals to Atlanta. It's really in the 1990s that Republicans begin to flex some muscles. Come 2002, with the election of Sonny Perdue, well, it becomes a red state after that. By this time, the Democratic Party in Georgia is floundering. They don't have much money. Their candidates don't do well. And, you know, since then, they've begun to bounce back. Stacey Abrams' ideas, which really come into play as early as 2014, where she starts uh, saying, well, rather than trying to win back these Democrats who defected, Maybe we need to go looking at other places for for voters. Some of today's shifts are again happening in the suburbs, now growing and diversifying. Last cycle, Georgia elected a Democrat for president for the first time since 1992 and sent two Democrats to the U.S. Senate. As Carter approaches his 10th decade, the state is less and less dominated by one political party. Georgia is instead becoming a preeminent political battleground. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. That's the show this week. My thanks to the WABE News team. There was so much more that we couldn't fit into the show. You can find that at WABE.org. And of course, always be sure to tell your smart speaker to play WABE. I'm Alex Helmick. Thanks for listening.